Here's a quick recap from part 1 of Let's talk about Kashmir. This Kashmir is a dispute, it's a dispute between India and Pakistan and there is no legal case for azadi. When you look at uh, Kashmiri journalists, when you look at Kashmiri newspapers, the kind of hatred they spread through the report, it's it's shameful. Of course it has never been a part of India, it's never felt a part of India. Wo patthar hum Hindustan ke us policy ko maarte hain. The Kingdom of Jammu and Kashmir was created by the British in 1846 after the Sikh lost the first Anglo-Sikh war. Hari Singh is also the one who signed the instrument of accession. And a constituent assembly of Jammu and Kashmir was set up. And so Article 370 says the president by a notification can abolish Article 370. Hamko Pakistan chahiye, hamko Hindustan chahiye. Hamko azadi de. Uh, even if the government of India was to pave the roads of Kashmir gold tomorrow, will this so-called separatism go away? So I said that there's a lot of debate going around the whole Kashmiri Pandit uh, migration thing. You know, they they did leave, uh, you know, of their own. There were some that stayed behind. So in part 1 we went over the legal position on article 370 the rise and fall of militancy in the valley the exodus of kashmiri pandits and the historical perspective of the autonomy of jammu and kashmir now let's come to the role of the armed forces the rise in stone pelting and the use of pellet guns cases of human rights violation and how they are dealt with the difficulties the forces face and the bullying the locals face also the role of local police and their relationship with the indian army It's the second episode and this time too let's talk about Kashmir. This is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to Let's talk about. Before I get into the rest of the episode, thank you all so much for subscribing because if you're listening to this, you clearly are a subscriber. Could I please urge you to spread the word to your family and friends and acquaintances on social media? and encourage them to subscribe also we have two more news laundry sena projects waiting for your support our first nl sena project led to five ground reports do support the nl sena and fund independent and unafraid media stuff like this takes time and resources and we don't take any advertising so you're all we got the first part of let's talk about kashmir ended with this is it a is, what is kashmir going to be is it going to be secular kashmir um absolutely not because if you just go to youtube and listen to some of the speeches of uh mr sayed ali shah gilani he he is very clear about it and you must we must respect him for that he It's says it. very mm. clearly and i'm just quoting him kashmir mein jamhooriyat nahi chalegi kashmir mein nationalism nahi chalega kashmir mein subayat nahi chalegi which is provincialism kashmir mein democracy nahi chalegi kashmir इस्लाम की निस्बत से पाकिस्तान है हम पाकिस्तानी हैं पाकिस्तान हमारा है राइट सिंपल दैट वॉज राहुल पंडिता अ जर्नलिस्ट एंड कश्मीरी रेफ्यूजी questioning what will an azad kashmir even look like when people like sayed ali shah gilani who have a fair amount of support locally even if much of the state does not agree with him But when they make such statements one can see why Kashmiri pandits would feel unsafe and not want to go back home so in come the indian armed forces does that help make kashmir safer and possible for pandits to return or does it do the opposite in the 80s and early 90s militancy and terrorists would roam the streets brandishing automatic weapons it was a common sight that does not happen anymore but the state did need to exert its authority and military had to step in to stop that and the bloodshed is way less now but what the military intervention does not stop is calls for azadi and those have only become much louder is that a legal option azadi everyone wants it from the journalists to the stone pelters to hamare jnu ke kanhaiya kumar sabko chahiye kya chahiye azadi लेकिन सिंस राइट नाउ वी आर डीलिंग विद लीगल ऑप्शंस इज आजादी इवन अ लीगल ऑप्शन लेट्स गो बैक टू प्रोफेसर रामचंद्र गुहा यू सी आई थिंक इफ यू गो बैक टू व्हाट हैपेंड इन 47 48 
there was uh, Kashmir uh, exile to India. There was a war between India and Pakistan. There was a ceasefire. There was a UN resolution, and under the UN resolution, a plebiscite would be held if Pakistan vacated the part of Kashmir held by it. If the whole regime was a region was demilitarized, and the plebiscite said, under those conditions, the Kashmiris can vote either to join India or to Pakistan, or join Pakistan. And those are the only two options that remain. Azadi is not a legal option. Azadi can only be one. So-called freedom fighters militarily defeat the Indian Army the way the Bangladeshis defeated the Pakistanis with the help of the Indian Army, or the way the Eritreans defeated the Ethiopians, which are the only two examples in recent history of of you know a nation becoming independent through the force of arms. Even the Indian media, that should know better, hasn't really clarified this point adequately. That the young people on the streets protesting, partly justifiably because of the excesses of the security forces. Partly out of sense of anger and despair, that these young people are being misguided and deluded if they think Azadi is there as a legal option. Many of them have been led to believe that the plebiscite promises Azadi. It does not. Azadi can only come about if the young men and the jihadis and the mujahideen defeat the Indian army, which at least in the foreseeable future it does not seem feasible in a military sense. Now back with Colonel Shadda, who we met in part one of this series. He has served in Kashmir during the insurgency and now works with one of the largest defence think tanks in India. You have people running in the streets there. If you were to individually call them and say, "Beta, what is it that you want?" He will be, he will be ill at ease to define that objective to you. Anyone can see that it's very clear. We do not want to be part of the Indian state. We are not part of the of the Indian state, and we just, uh, you know. Uh, do not want this to continue. This occupation continues, and we do not want it to continue. So, would you consider yourself Pakistani then? No, I would not consider myself Pakistani. Then that is an individual opinion, though. Hmm. I think what I consider myself a Kashmiri, right? That is the identity we are born with. That is the identity we are deeply entrenched with, right? Hmm. It's Kashmiri. It's not. It's a very mistaken thought that we are grow up thinking we are Pakistani. We grow up thinking we are Kashmiris. No, and I ask because I, I ask because the yeah. uh, law that you are referring to that uh, you know the UN uh, that there was supposed to be plebiscite. Mm. The offer yeah. on the plebiscite was Pakistan or India. So the the very law mm. that you are citing never had Kashmir mm. as an independent country. So if you cite that law. You gonna either have to pick Pakistan or India. There is no third option in the law that you are citing. So that's why I ask. That's See, the only that, reason. The, the th- that is the thing. That is the thing. Laws should not be static. They should be dynamic, right? If that right now, was S R Batul, who also we have met in part one of this podcast series. She's a young Kashmiri human rights activist and co-author of the book. Do you remember Konan Poshpura? Her preferred solution to much like Subramanian Swami's. Falls outside what is legal, except from the other side of the fence. The sense of not wanting to be part of India you will find in pretty much every voice you hear on the ground. If there are ones that do want to be part of India, you don't hear them. I do believe there are some, but it would be hard to be vocal with that position in the valley. Here is Rahul Pandita, both a journalist and a Kashmiri pandit, who had to flee his home. I ask him, does he see where this anti-India sentiment comes from, and can he empathise with it? You think there are several realities here, or you can't identify with that sentiment? No, no, not at all. I mean, I do. Uh, I mean, as a journalist, I have reported extensively from Kashmir. I have reported extensively on some of these issues uh, you just referred to. I have reported on Machir, Pakrebal, you know, all these grave human rights violations. There is no denying the fact. Uh, that Indian state has played a rather mischievous role uh, in, in in Kashmir and continues to do so. There's no denying the fact. Uh, there's also no denying the fact that there have been uh, excesses, state excesses, uh, post uh, the armed insurgency, insurgency of 1919. There's no denying the fact. Um, so, you know, like I keep on saying, the Kashmiri pandas do not hold a brief to India. You know, we. We're not flag bearers of India in, in that sense. Right. Uh, we are, you know, we are proud to be a part of India. But uh, um, you know, one all I all I'm trying to say is that one pain does not have to exist at the cost of another pain. Right. You know, these are two mutually exclusive things. 
Kashmiri pundits, uh, you know, the brutality of the Indian state, uh, elections were rigged, uh, stuff happened, uh, people, youngsters went across the border, came back with guns, Kashmiri pundits became a victim, victim of uh, those guns, they became a victim of Islamist extremism. But having said that, let's 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 try and understand what is happening now. Um, you know, one can understand what happened in 2008. Uh, one can understand what happened uh, in 2010 when innocent uh, youngsters died in uh, uh, police fighting. The first uh, killing actually happened because a young boy, 17-year-old boy, was hit by a tear gas shell. Hmm. But what is happening now? What triggered this recent uh, mayhem in Kashmir? It's the killing of a militant commander. Hmm. It's, a, it's the killing of a militant commander from a terrorist organization called Hizbun Mujahideen. You're referring to Burhan and, Wani. A, a militant called a terrorist called Burhan Wani. Right. Who has had a very clear agenda about establishing an Islamic caliphate in Kashmir. The shooting to death of Burhan Wani by the Indian forces on the 8th of July 2016 led to massive protests in the valley. Burhan Wani's funeral saw almost 200,000, that's 2 lakh people, flocked to the streets of Srinagar. This is significant because this is not the same thing as many innocent teens who've suffered at the hands of armed forces in Kashmir. There have been cases of innocents dying down the years because of military action and massive crowds gathered at the funeral. This time, it was in support of a man who had stated that he wanted to establish an Islamic caliphate in Kashmir using the gun. He was a commander of the Hizbul Mujahideen. Like, full legit. This is not a rumour or a Twitter-type fact. It's a real fact. How did it get to this? How did a man like Burhan Wani get such sympathy in the valley? Here is Colonel Chadda. The human rights violations um, that, you know, they say occur there, uh, a lot of, including the militant commander, terrorist, different people call him different things, but yes, I think he didn't have any noble aims, this Burwan Wani. Burwan Wani, yeah. Uh, he wanted to establish a caliphate, so, uh, you know, that he saw his brother being bashed up in front of him. Um, our team has spoken to some kids in Kashmir who are 15, they were arrested for the first time when they were like in class 8, he said I was like 12 or 13, some of them had been arrested when they were 11, slapped around. They said that's how we do it. They said we just want to piss these people off, including wave ISI's flags and stuff. To what extent do human rights violations happen? And uh, I'll just ask you one more question and you can answer both together and take your time. You know, I have uh, uh, done several shows with the armed forces. I have uh, been to Varangte where the uh, jungle warfare and counterinsurgency school, right? That's, that's right. what it's called. Uh, so off the record, a lot of people will tell us that, you know, when we were in NDA and IMA, we were trained from the time we were 15 to take on an enemy. If we were told there were five militants in that hut, we would go and get those guys out whether we burnt the hut, burnt the village or not. That is what we trained to do. We weren't trained to fight friends and win hearts and minds. That happened later when they realized that shit, this is going out of control. So they said, yes, they happened, but it was no one's fault because we weren't trained to deal with friends. We were trained to deal with enemies. And because a generation saw that, that generation sees us as the bad guys. And now they are, you know, various training modules of how to, you know, distribute candy or whatever it is. But that's not how it happened. Just shed some light on the context of this, you know, because there are no obvious black and whites here, right? Yes. Um, I would partly agree with uh, what they've told you. Uh, now, what happens is you look at how the induction took place in Kashmir. Uh, the pattern is very similar. You look at how the induction took place into Sri Lanka, how the induction took place into the Northeast. A lot of times, uh, situations arose, and the situations that arose were such that it reflected a complete breakdown of the law and order machinery in the state. Uh, take the example of Mizoram. Um, you had Operation Jericho, which gets launched on a particular day, out of the blue and um, the state is practically overrun by the insurgents there. And Operation Jericho was? Uh, this was the operation launched by the Mizo National Front uh, in 1966. Okay. And on the eve of this operation, other than a few administrative areas in Imphal, 
they were able to overrun most of the uh, important areas in the state. Now, that was the situation of a state, uh, it wasn't even a state at that time, of a region within the union where there is complete breakdown of the administrative order of the security order within the state. So, you immediately have to rush whichever are the army units in the vicinity into that area. Now, the army units which are going to come there and that is one of the unique examples where even air power was used to, right. dissipate, the, to, to, to the, dissipate the insurgent groups. Now, what would you imagine would be the methodology of operations of these armed forces which have not operated in CI operations earlier, counter-insurgency operations earlier, have primarily been trained for uh, conventional operations and they are just getting exposed to a threat which is as good or as bad as any threat they have been trained for but yet they are their own countrymen. So, under such circumstances, you are bound to find mistakes taking place. You are also bound to find uh, cases of violations uh, which may either be because of the manner in which you operate conventionally, that getting reflected in these areas or because your intelligence voids are so deep that you are not sure as to who is a friend and who is an adversary. Right, there is no way to know. There is no way to know. Now, this kind of a thing has unfortunately happened repeatedly when the armies got induct inducted into a number of areas. There is complete breakdown of law and order machinery within a state. So, when the army moves into those areas, it, it practically gets into a situation of a void. Now, when you get into a situation of a void… So, it is an intelligence void, you do not It know. is not only an intelligence void, it is also an administrative void. Uh, I can tell you from my experience uh, in Kashmir and this is as late as 1995, so it is not the earlier stages and in Doda, when we moved in there, uh, we were told that uh, some people used to celebrate more out of fear probably. Uh, 14th August and not 15th August. Right, the Pakistan independence day, not the Indian. Exactly. We were also told that the writ of the foreign terrorist was so strong in that area that the local inspector used to seek permission from them before moving out for his usual uh, work that he had to do. We are also aware that these guys used to move on top of buses with their light machine guns mounted. So, there was a complete absence of the state machinery. The local judge who, who was there had run away from that area. So, there was no judiciary. My God, is that right? So, that was the state uh, in which the army moved in. Now, if this be the state, what exactly do you expect to be the nature of intelligence which comes from this area? Because the people are scared. Yeah, I you know, just chip in right now with, uh, I've read the book by Mark Tully and Satish Jacob, uh, Mrs. Gandhi's Last Stand. And in that, how the Punjab police, the intelligence was not just non-existent, was wrong. And for that, a lot of army people lost their lives because they said, you know, then they don't, they're just a handful, they don't have automatic weapons. And when the army went, they were fully armed army and they lost a lot of lives. So there was that distrust of the, because a lot of the local administration was sympathetic to the cause. Is that the case in Kashmir as well? Uh, it certainly was. Okay. It certainly was. Uh, there had been infiltration of the state institutions. Back to veteran journalist Riaz Wani, who has won a Ramnath Goyanka award for his reporting from Kashmir. My perception is different. I don't know about Punjab, but I know about Kashmir. I know that it is police which now handles around 70 to 80 percent of militancy here. It's not army. It's police which does it. It's police, fire, police with CRPF. Okay, army assists them later in the operation, the encounters, but it is mainly police job here now. It's police which has been handling militancy for several, many, many years now. From, I think for the past decade or so. It's police which is at the forefront. So they know better. I see. They know better. Yes. And and uh, do you think it's problematic that the policemen, while they are doing their jobs or, you know, uh, they have to cover their faces because they are scared of the repercussions? Um, you know, a police being scared of, you know, even showing its face, um, do you think that says something? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Because they face, uh, they are currently even they are facing huge public backlash because they are from the same society. Right. So, so it makes it harder do, for them. So what they do if there are policemen from Baramla, they put them from the North Kashmir Baramla, they deploy them in South Kashmir and, and vice versa. So that they, they, people don't recognize them, people don't identify them. And in, in recent, over the past 60 days, there have been many instances where houses of policemen have been burned and many have kind of quit their jobs because, because of the threats 
तो मतलब मामला ये होगा कि आप अपने ही एरिया के बच्चों को ग्रोन आप उन्हीं पर आप फिर लाठियां बरसानी पड़ती हैं अगर आप उसी अपने एरिया में अगर आप सर्व करेंगे relationship between the army and the local police is not very great i spoke to a local kashmiri journalist and he seemed to prefer the jnk police to the army and i think it's probably the only place in the country i've spoken to where people trust the police more than the army because of course i'm i'm a foggy kid so i have <laughs> a different view uh, maybe because i'm prejudiced uh, against the police and i love the army but um he said that the local police understands how to deal with us you know because they live in the same community but in the same breath he said that if they get recognized the houses are set on fire uh, and their intelligence is better than the poli- uh, army intelligence how, how do you say the relationship between the local police and the army it's a very interesting thing that you brought up what you must realize is let's take the example of shrinagar there is no army deployment there hmm. there is no rr deployment there who's deployed there it's either the police or the central reserve police force right so there is absolutely no army so within that area uh, there cannot be a comparison between the army and the police not today but army has uh, it it's it army has barely been deployed there it's essentially been the police and the central police forces except for a few uh, maybe a couple of years initially right. because of the situation that was there it's always been the police hmm. right now what he says from a local point of view is understandable because irrespective of what the police does they still see it as the local stock and it's not peculiar only to kashmir it's also peculiar to other states like manipur uh, which have a huge problem of uh, law and order now interestingly and I'll, i'll give you this example if you were to go to manipur and just trace out the number of cases of human right violation accusations you will find that a huge majority is against the manipur manipur police but every agitation is related to aspa which is only applicable to the army right and every agitation talks of the army's human right violations right because the local perception uh, whatever you may say tends to become sentimental when it comes to their own people so it's not based on facts so the hostility would be on the army but the they'd be less they'd be more forgiving to the local police when they talk to you when they talk but when you go out and get deployed there you will find that in the hinterland wherever the army is deployed the rr is deployed the locals will have ex- exceptional relations with the the local commanders they meet them every day they come to their post they use the medical facilities they use the csd facilities there's no problem at all but what happens is that when it comes to projecting an opinion or a perception then they see the army to be representing the larger face of what they, they don't find acceptable so there is a difference in the attitude at the local level and there will be a difference when they talk of an institution like uh, some of the boys who we've spoken to in kashmir they say we are picked up no fir is lodged like we are kept in a thana for a month slapped around and then sent that's home that's the point that i'm making it's not the army which picks them up correct no but <laughs> it's now, the local police yeah, but now, uh, now the psa is the public security act is the act which is used against some of these people for local disturbances so the stone throwers will get picked up and they will be jailed under psa now you can be jailed for 6 months without anything happening thereafter right right so who is it that is doing it it's not the army it's not the rr they're not involved at all right right so a lot of cases that happen of the kind that uh, we are discussing are actually related to the local police but when the agitation happens the agitation is against aspa the agitation is against the army army there is which is not factually based on any reality now we have a young lady who is a human rights activist and writer from kashmir sr would you just like to introduce yourself and what you do and what you've written yeah uh, i'm a professional social worker based in uh, srinagar and i'm also uh, working uh, on documenting human rights with jammu kashmir coalition of civil society and uh, i also happen to be the co-author of the book uh, do you remember kunan poshpura uh, this book documents the 1991 mass rape case that happened in uh, between villages of kunan and poshpura by the fourth rajputana rifles of the indian army and uh, why is this case significant 
uh, this case is significant because it represents the kind of impunity Indian armed forces have in Kashmir. It, repre- it represents how Indian, the Indian state has been able to, uh, you know, use institutions, uh, whether these are legal, uh, judicial, administrative institutions, to uh, cover up uh, the truth of a case and to, you know, humiliate uh, the victims and the survivors continuously for 25 years now. And also it just uh, gives us an insight into uh, how this, if this is a mass rape case, and how small, uh, other crimes where the numbers are not huge of the survivors and the victims, how these cases go unreported and untried. They have all of the cases have gone untried, and this time this is just a proof of the fact that no Indian armed forces soldier has ever been uh, tried or uh, you know prosecuted in Kashmir in any human rights uh, violation case ever. Uh- uh, so you're certain that no man from the army has been tried or prosecuted because I spoke with uh, no. an army personnel, uh, Colonel yeah. uh, Chadda, and he actually yeah. cited uh, s- uh, that you know uh, there have been uh, cases for uh, whether it was causing uh, death or injury of army personnel. I think he had mentioned eight cases, if I'm not wrong. These uh, the, the the trial is mostly court martial. So these are not, they are not tried in civilian courts, they are tried in military courts and you know these proceedings are not open to either civil administration or to civilians, right? And most of these cases, these uh, soldiers get away with punishments uh, such as transfers or suspension, like which is not enough. In case you don't know, just to refresh your memory, these are the bare-bone facts of the Konan Pushpura case. On February 23, 1991, soldiers of four Rajputana rifles of the Indian Armed Forces cordoned off the villages of Konon and Poshpura in North Kashmir's Kopwara district. This was during an anti-insurgency operation. Allegedly, women in these two villages were gang-raped. Some say 23, some say 40, some say even 100. A government inquiry was instituted, but suspicions were raised when government deleted portions of the submitted report. Another case that became a talking point was a Shopia rape case, which has been used as a political you know, point to rally around forever. This happened in May 2009. 22-year-old Nilofa Jan and her 17-year-old sister-in-law, Asiya, were allegedly raped and murdered in Kashmir's Shopia district. Their bodies are found on the banks of a stream just outside town. Nilofar and Asiya's family allege they had been abducted, raped and murdered by members of the security forces. Uh, people of security forces said that this happened locally. There were some miscreants. Some say they weren't raped at all. Uh, you know, some say they drowned. Basically, it became a huge, huge issue. According to a report published in a Kashmiri newspaper, Greater Kashmir, the National Human Rights Commission received a total of 1,672 complaints from Jammu and Kashmir from the years 2010 to 2014. This is just 2010 to 2014. So mind you, in the 80s and 90s, how high this figure could have been. Now, what is the status of this particular case that you wrote a book about? Right now, the Kunan Poshpura case is pending before the Supreme Court of India. Uh, so far, uh, the other parties involved, which is the Home Ministry of India, the Defence Ministry, the Indian Armed Forces, they have not responded uh, to the notices yet. And uh, sometime back, the notices weren't even served to them. So from 2014, the case has been uh, is still pending in front of the... It's uh, it's still in front of the registry. Not ha- it, It's not even gone to a bench yet. For anyone who has encountered or worked with the armed forces, it is not a leap of imagination to think that cases of human rights violation could happen. I'm the son of an army officer and I have shot a television series with the forces. Having camped out with them in the blistering sands of Rajasthan and the lush and dense forests of Manipur and in some border areas. The conditions they work in are so punishing, most of us wouldn't last one week there. And I'm not just talking about the physical discomfort. I'm also talking about the emotional and mental stress of trying to do good or perceived good in an area where everyone hates you and think you're evil. Basically, you go out and try to do something nice, you think you're following orders and serving your country and everyone there says you're a jerk, you're a dick, please get out of here. That can be extremely stressful and for prolonged periods of time to live in that environment really does things to you. But there are other, more major hazards that lead to the mistakes that forces make in such an unfamiliar environment. Another thing which is, uh, which is, uh, which happens every time but doesn't seem to get highlighted, ultimately who is it that gives you information in that area? 
it is somebody amongst the locals hmm. right now at times some of the locals what they do is in order to settle a personal dispute they will give you somebody's name now you do not have adequate information initially to back it up so you might end up taking action based on their intelligence which may be completely wrong and when that happens and when that happens you are the one who who's committed a human right violation right right so so in in all sincerity you have acted on intelligence received exactly which turned out to exactly. be a local exactly but that you'll get to know over only over a period of time right and by the time you've come to know you would have made certain mistakes now which is not to say that there have not been mistakes on purpose as well that there haven't been human right violation and which is the reason why a number of cases uh, have taken place where people have been punished i know of any number of people including officers who've not only been cashiered out of service which is getting thrown out from the army but also been put in civil jails is that right so it's not that it has happened but again it's a battle of perceptions you know you hear a story from somebody to say you know this 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 happens every day like it it's a very common refrain and very so called respectable uh, agencies like amnesty make these kind of statements that you know rapes and uh, thrashing and extrajudicial killing is the norm now this is not how things happen today if you were to go and talk to an army officer in jnk he'll tell you that the precautions that i need to take and the the kind of restraint that i have to exercise actually puts my life in threat and which can be seen from the fact that if if you look at the number of casualties of officers for example which take place uh, in in ca areas it must be one of the highest in the world why is it so because indian army fights because they take the necessary precautions well. you know he will he will think twice before he opens fire and in your when you were serving there as a you know much younger man than you are now uh, it wasn't so like it is now it i mean one didn't have to be that careful is that right yes uh, i i would agree with that uh, things have only become stricter over a period of time uh, is that a good thing it certainly is it certainly is i think the army has realized even though some of your own you know yes but i would still and... say i would still say in the long run this is the right way to go uh, because uh, we've realized that all counter insurgencies uh, are not really military battles right you don't go there for 2 years to sort out a problem you go there to try and bring down the levels of violence and with the ultimate objective that there's going to be a political settlement yes and i think that understanding is far more deep rooted today than it probably was in the past the other thing that people have realized is that if there is a human right violation it actually harms the interest of the security forces and the government far more than maybe killing five terrorists while all that may be true and practical now in hindsight what about those who have seen only the ugly side of the forces and have had first hand experience of damage done to one's immediate family or friends for years not a week or a month but for years that is all they have seen of the forces would they not grow up with the feeling of alienation and a desire for azadi from this entire jamela ki boss we want out of this shit if right now uh, among the people there's a, a need they think there's a need to be independent both of india and pakistan i think the the law that the plebiscite uh, condition that it should be the indian in india or pakistan could be you know there could be pressure to change that as well i mean because there is a third option that many people really want hum baithe the itne mein se forces aa gayi bina koi baat kiye उन्होंने गोलियां स्टार्ट की जिसमें मेरे दोस्त को भी गोली लगी वो उसी टाइम का तो लोग पहली बार मैं सीधे निकल रहा था घर से तो मुझे पकड़ लिया तो फिर मैंने सोचा जब मैंने कुछ नहीं किया पुलिस वालों ने पीटा और फिर मैं स्टूडेंट पार्टी करने लगा तब से और एट्थ में मुझे पहला एफ लग गया तब से लेकर आज तक मैं स्टूडेंट पार्टी करता हूँ कैरियर जब तबाह हो गया तेरह चौदह परचित महीने में चार बार कोर्ट में होता हूँ पाँच बार कोर्ट में होता हूँ अब इससे बेहतर अब ऐसी जिंदगी का क्या अब बातचीत हमारे हाल पे आती है तो मैं एक जवान हूँ इस कौम का फ्यूचर हूँ देखिए हमारी नाइन्टीज से लेके अभी तक जितने भी हमारे जवान फ्यूचर है वो तो सारे तबाह हो गए मैं अपनी बात करूँगा मेरी पढ़ाई वो भी ख़त्म हो गई कश्मीर डिस्पूट की वजह से मैं घर जाता हूँ मेरे बाप को रोज़ फ़ोन आते भाई पुलिस स्टेशन आ जाए वहाँ आ जाए यहाँ आ जाए हम अगर किसी चीज़ के लिए अप्लाई करें पासपोर्ट्स हमें पासपोर्ट्स भी नहीं दिए जा रहे क्योंकि हम टेररिस्ट हैं हम टेररिस्ट क्यों हैं टेररिस्ट इसलिए क्योंकि हम अपना हक मांग रहे हैं वो पैरट का गोल है ये जब निकलता है इसमें से एक साथ 
अस्सी नब्बे निकलते हैं आंख में आता है बीन आई गई हर रोज जब भी पथरा होता है किसी ना किसी को आंख में आता है दोनों आंखें जिसकी जाए वो वो क्या करेगा वो तो जिंदा लाश बन गई ना ये जानवरों की चीज है जानवरों को लगाते हैं वो बेहोश हो जाते हैं इसीलिए ये पर, ये हम पर इस्तेमाल कर रहे हैं चाइल्ड नेम्ड सानिया लॉस्ट वन आई बिकॉज ऑफ द यूज ऑफ दिस गन एंड शी वॉज नी पार्ट ऑफ द प्रोटेस्ट शी वॉज जस्ट अप इन हाउस लुकिंग डाउन एंड देर सेवरल अदर पेलेट गन रिलेटेड इंजरीज According to the Indian Express report published in October 2016, more than 1000 people had eye injuries because of pellet guns. The Union Health Ministry sent a three-member team of eye specialists from Ames to Jammu and Kashmir in the month of July in 2016 to treat the victims of pellet gun incidents. I was a huge opponent of the pellet guns and I still am, but if we get real, are there any better options? Okay, what is your view of this pellet guns? You know, this has caused major debate in the recent protests. and um i must say that i too based on you know the information i get and our team spoke to the local uh, boys and girls there who had been hit by pellet guns um and i must say that the police doesn't speak and i think it does a great disservice to them because if they think by not speaking to anyone it it makes them look good it doesn't because then the battle of perception is won by the other side yeah i think that is something that's deeply flawed in the indian administrative setup but that's another debate another discussion right now the pellet guns know that little girl that 12 year old girl who was blinded uh, i saw her images you know other youngsters who went out you know and that has led to uh, uh, an effect it's like a, a vicious circle pellet guns used more people outrage more people come out more pellet guns used more what is your view of the pellet guns does it do more harm than good or is it necessary to use now uh, let's just first understand as to how do you control uh law and order situations so when you look at the uh groups of people who are protesting uh it could be uh, on the lowest scale uh, just a few people who may be protesting on a, related to a social issue which may not even be relevant to india it, it could be related to west asia to africa to to europe whatever just a group of people who are sitting somewhere on a dharna protesting so in a way that is a group of people protesting you also have the the um, uh, the anti corruption movement uh, which happened and you had a huge group at that time as well i was sitting there as well and yeah. you been a part of it so you would know it now that is another kind of protest but that group of people uh, and i'm trying to differentiate these different groups the first group would probably protest half a day walk away go to their homes uh, the second group uh, um, would be the kind that would protest more vigorously but it is not aimed at bodily harming the security forces nobody is going to lynch a, a policeman or go with the intent of killing him or from this group nobody is going to lob a grenade at the police people the protests are there at times they may be uh, they may verge on being violent but then it stops there so this is group number 2 now group number 3 is a group of people which are intent on either destroying public property and that is part of the intention or bodily harming lynching the security forces mm-hmm. now we must be able to distinguish between these groups because a lot of people say you know wahan lathi charge kiya tha to yahan kyun nahi kar sakte wahan tear gas feki thi pani feka tha humne dekha tha jantar mantar ke paas aur humne dekha tha south block ke paas parliament ke paas to yahan par kyun nahi kar sakte you have to realize the differentiation of these different groups hmm. now what you see in kashmir i must say i have been guilty of making those equivalences as well and this is something which ideally should come out from them they should be able to tell people as to what is the nature of this mob so How this is a mob which has lynched policemen this is a mob from within which grenades have been hurled this is a mob which has thrown a vehicle with the driver into the jhelum leaving leading to the death of that driver this is a mob which has pulled out doors of vehicles bulletproof vehicles this is a mob which has pulled They've out the doors like of actually like ripped apart yes bullet. yes they have ripped up off the doors of bulletproof bunkers now if that is the ferocity of this mob then you cannot equate this mob with any other group which is protesting in the country because a lot of people say bangalore mein hota wahan kyun nahi karte delhi mein hota wahan kyun nahi pellet gun use karte there is a differentiation whether it is a lathi or a tear gas shell or uh, uh, the 12 bore uh, uh, gun which is being used any of these are designed in a way that under certain circumstances they should not cause fatal injuries hmm. but to say that a lathi cannot cause a fatal injury is factually incorrect we've had cases of tear gas shell falling on people's head directly and killing them 
they obviously not meant to do that it's an accident which has happened and somebody dies so it is obviously a, 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 a less lethal uh, form of weaponry with the police but under certain circumstances it could in a freak case lead to somebody's death in 2009 when the protests happened uh, rifles were being used conventional rifles were being used and the number of deaths which happened in a very short period of time was far more it was realized that we need to have something which is less lethal than your conventional rifles now given the nature of the mobs what is it that can stop the mob a lot of people have said tear gas it doesn't stop any mob which is intent on harming you a lot of people have said why don't you use water cannons interestingly 8000 liter bowser of water gets emptied in 8 minutes where do you get all the kind of replacements you need uh, uh, for them secondly a crowd which is intent on pushing against the security forces and you've seen it during the protest yourself it's not going to be stopped by these water, water cannons. cannons what is it that stops them either it is your rifle the conventional rifle or you need something less so lethal than that pellet gun is the lesser of the two it evils. is the lesser of the two evils you have no choice but to use them against certain kinds of crowds and that needs to be understood very clearly so to be honest i was a major anti pellet gun person before this conversation and after it i do see the merit in the argument that taking into account the nature of the protests in kashmir pellet guns are the only option one has so far i hear there is some high frequency sound gun which some people use or some countries are working on which creates a really loud high pitched screeching screeching noise that makes crowd scatter if it exists and if it works kashmir needs it until then i don't see an alternative to this weapon meant for animals at the same time it is impossible to explain this to a child whose future is plunged into darkness because of a stray shot to his or her eyes it is unreasonable to expect a parent to not want revenge or at least retribution when he or she sees their child suffer wouldn't you want that for your child are civilian casualties an outcome of military and police heavy handedness is military or police heavy handedness an outcome of violent civilian protests are violent civilian protests an outcome of civilian casualties and so it goes round it's a vicious circle and it's so hard to say what is the cause and what is the outcome the answer depends really on who you speak to for me and many like me a foggy kid the sight of an olive green uniform is reassuring it gives me comfort till today it's a reflex response from when i was really young when i was a child between the ages of 4 and 10 you know traveling to visit my dad wherever he was posted with my mother and my two sisters it was a bit scary you know in a railway in a train with you know crowded station sometimes the journey would take 40 hours 48 hours especially when dad was posted you know to assam whenever we'd see a couple of army jawans lugging their trunk and hold all into the same bogey as ours you felt reassured you felt you were safe but having spoken to youngsters who have seen that same uniform carry out unspeakable violations against their friends their families their mothers i can understand the sight of olive green for them brings out the exact opposite emotion fear anger rage where do these two realities meet and who is visionary enough and has the trust of the people in kashmir and the rest of india to pull off a resolution i see no one on the horizon being able to do that but maybe a historian like ramchandra guha would know better how do you see this being resolved if at all in our lifetime Uh, well uh, you are much younger than me so hopefully it will be resolved in your life guys <laughs> but in my lifetime i may have 15 or 20 years to live unlike i think it will require uh, enormous sagacity goodwill and uh, the willingness to admit to mis- uh, mistakes being made on the part of three parties the government of india the government of pakistan and what is called the freedom movement in kashmir because a blot on the freedom movement in kashmir remains the expulsion of the pandits and the failure to probably account for it or to apologize for it or to make amends for it or to acknowledge that that expulsion and ethnic cleansing was done the government of india has many crimes to answer for in terms of its excessive use of force its jailing of popular leaders its leading of election pakistan has its own crimes to answer for in terms of sponsoring terrorism post since the uri attack so uh, it will require a great deal of self search soul searching and honesty and transparency on the part of three sets of actors so it's not likely to happen but as an indian i at least hope that my government uh, which i as a citizen can try and hold accountable to that my government acknowledges that the autonomy 
promise to Kashmir at the time of accession has never been properly or thoroughly uh, acted upon. And at least attempt should be made. I think the Prime Minister pretty well advised to clearly say that, I, that Article 370 will not be rolled back. To begin by saying that, which is contrary to the RSS position. But if he wants to say that, Kashmiris will begin to trust the government again. Rahul Pandita, a Kashmiri refugee and journalist. I think we need to learn with uh, you know we need to we need to learn to live with this. Um, it will go on and on. Uh, India's the, the the state of India's the Indian state is very powerful. It's like an elephant, you know. Um, it can it can take it can take a lot of shock. Uh, you know the Indian security forces uh, tomorrow there will be some ambush. Uh, unfortunately, tragically, you know. Five, ten CRP personnel will die. A few uh, from the Indian Army will die. But the you know the the, the great Indian state juggernaut, as they call it, will will roll on. Will roll on. Mm. Uh, but it's you, you know the outcome of it will be ultimately tragic because both sides are losing life. What will be the uh, outcome? Future is very bleak. But what will be the outcome? The outcome. I mean, I wish I knew, but in my assessment, it will go on and on. Do you, do you no, see? There will be no final outcome. Do you see yourself ever going back home and being able to go back to your house and say, I'm back in Kashmir? Honestly, not in the near future, Abhinanda. It's becoming tougher and tougher. Fahad Shah a young Kashmiri freelance journalist. Do you see this issue getting resolved in your lifetime? Do you think your children will grow up in a peaceful Kashmir or do you think this problem will take decades to resolve? Uh, well, let's see if I ever have <laughs> children. I'm not, uh, like, I'm not so sure. The way things are going right now and have been going in my life, I don't think like we have reached anywhere in solving Kashmir. Like Nobody has. Neither India nor Pakistan. Riazwani a veteran Kashmiri journalist. If I were to ask between you, your friends, your peer group, do you see yourself as Azadi or do you see yourself as a part of India? How would you, if given a perfect world, if everything was peaceful tomorrow, what, how would you see your identity? Uh, <laughs> I think it would matter what I think. I'll tell you one thing. Hmm. Whatever I think, I, I, I doubt it matters at all. Because I will go if, if the largest number of people of Kashmir, whatever they want, my I am nobody. I'm nobody. If, if the largest number of people of this valley of the state want a certain solution, certain kind of solution, then who am I? I'm nobody. I I can't impose my my kind of my individual opinion on all of them. I'll go with all of those people because it is they who matter. I don't matter at, at an individual level because why should for my own individual choice I should kind of impose it on my people. I'm nobody there. Right. As, as far as this is, I, because I know, I believe it, is in that one should have an individual opinion, that uh, individual point of view, individual way on life also. But this is something, if the largest, so many people are giving their lives for something, or if they are, they are on the streets, hmm. uh, if, if around 10, 12,000 have been injured, and several hundred have lost their lives, then I see I'm nobody. What what what, what does it matter what I what I think or what I not think? Let me end with a cliche. Ghar firdose ruhe zaminasta, haminasto haminasto haminasta. That is Farsi, and it means if there is a paradise on earth, it is here. It is here. It is here. You will find Emperor Jahangir as being credited with that quote. They say he said it in the 17th century. I don't believe that. Because when you're king, you can claim anything. Aapke kingdom mein the finest poet writes a poem and you're king, you say, Yara, I like that poem, I wrote it. What are you going to say? No, Jahapana, sorry, I wrote this. Because you can't, because Jahapana will get your head crushed by his favorite elephant. But anyway, for ease, Jahangir is credited with that quote. But coming to the point, Kashmir, a paradise like no other, I have learned many new things about during this podcast. The one thing, important one, that I had a view of before this podcast that has changed is that throughout my life I've heard that, you know, India made a big mistake in 1948 that we stopped at where we stopped. 
we didn't take over the rest of Kashmir, what is now called Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Even during 1971, where we could have taken it and we should have occupied all of Kashmir. I've spoken to military officers who say that was not a mistake. It was a conscious decision. It was done knowing that controlling an area, almost double of what is Kashmir right now, the valley, would be even more difficult than what we are facing right now. And that too with almost double or maybe more than the amount of people here who don't want to be part of India. So it's best to let Pakistan handle that. We should just handle what we already have. Uniting that part of Kashmir is what is called Pakistan-occupied Kashmir and this part of Kashmir under one government would be impossible and the biggest mess for anyone who tries to control it. Also, Kashmiri pundits or any other minority wouldn't stand a chance of surviving in that environment. So this is the best. Pakistan will not let go unless it completely crumbles or disintegrates, which will not happen in the near future. So what then? Is it a stalemate? Is it a deadlock? Is it forever? Or is it a marathon? And that country or party that can stay the longest and take the most punishment and take the biggest beating but continue holding on will finally be able to resolve this. There is no quick solution. Not in the foreseeable future. But that is not what I was trying to get to through this podcast. I was trying to give you, dear listener, a slightly deeper look into the Kashmir tangle than what you may have had so far. I hope I've succeeded. If I haven't, I'm sorry. I'll try harder next time. What I was trying to do was to make you hear a few more voices, understand a few more perspectives, and empathize with a few more experiences than what you may have been exposed to so far. There is no one reality. And that is the reality of Kashmir and its biggest misfortune. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk About. Such projects take a lot of time and a lot of resources and it is only through your subscriptions that we can make them better and bigger because we don't take advertisements. So you have to support us if you want to listen to more such stuff because when the public pays, the public is served and when advertisers pay, advertisers are served. Also, if you have any suggestions of what subjects you'd like us to go into in this podcast series because we do take a detailed look at subjects, do write in to contact at newslaundry.com with your suggestions or you can write to me directly at abhinandan.sekri at gmail.com So, see you next time. Until then, peace. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.